and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Of course, I don't share the Prime Minister's enthusiasm about Brexit as such. Since the very beginning, we have had no doubt that Brexit is a lose-lose situation and that our negotiations are only about damage control. Another week in Brexit, another deep, weary sigh emitted by the entire rest of the world. My guests Chiara Ramella, Paige Reynolds and Marcus Hippie will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the deserving victors and the cruelly robbed in Monocle's latest soft power survey and Paris poised to become a car-free city. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Paige Reynolds, Chiara Ranella and Marcus Hippie. Welcome all. And we will start in the United Kingdom, where very much not for the first time in the Brexit process, a considerable tumult of sound and fury has ended up signifying not very much. A Shakespearean illusion. The Prime Minister Theresa May remains in office despite still further desertions from her cabinet. The hardcore Brexit tendency, which beset and beleaguer her, show no further inclination to come up with any constructive suggestions of their own, and the country still has to pick one from three unappetising options. Theresa May's withdrawal deal, which nobody likes, a no-deal exit for which the country is manifestly unprepared, or another referendum, which looks a dauntingly distant prospect. Um, This is all going terrifically well. Um, The the new development this afternoon is that there is a new Secretary of State uh, for Brexit. His name is Stephen Barclay. Anyone? You know, I have to be honest, I, I, I had to Google the name and then I found an article that says that Google searches for this name have been, have been getting very popular today. Okay. No one seems to know, but he's he's been he's been working in a ministerial role before. So I was actually googling about that, and I did find that he's actually been doing he's actually been doing some work before. So he's he's been involved with the government work. Okay. So what we've learned there is that we're reasonably certain that Stephen Barclay exists. Well, that 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 will be helpful to him in his forthcoming role. Um, Page. Is it arguable? And this is the, this is the great weirdness of of Theresa May is that she just carries on surviving the apparently unsurvivable. Is there actually an argument that she's in a better position than she was forty eight hours ago? Well, perhaps. I mean, first of all, she's still here, um, still standing. Um, and I think in terms of the resignations, uh, the ministers that she's lost, and um, we've now heard the, who their replacements are going to be. So she's managed to bring Amber Rudd back into the fold, who um, who is a is a kind of a May loyalist. Um, she will be replacing Esther McVeigh, and she's brought Stephen Barclay, who we've just discussed, uh, to replace uh, Dominic Rudd. As Brexit is doing a lot of work. Yes, there. and and no one's really heard of him, um, and everyone seems to think that he's rather a sensible choice and and you know right now he's not really going to be working on the actual terms of the deal he's just going to be working on sort of pushing this deal through and what didn't happen overnight like a lot of people were expecting after the first round of resignation there wasn't a second wave of resignations Um, uh, Gove has stayed um, and no one else high profile has has left so it perhaps it's made May look even more even more resilient um Uh See, Kiara, I didn't require personally any further confirmation that the, the head-banging Brexiteer tendency are just a bunch of charlatans and bluffers. They are the proverbial dog that caught the car and now doesn't wish to learn how to drive it. But it, it 
I don't know, are, are you able to understand how they have been able to go so far into this process without actually furnishing any constructive ideas of how it can actually practically happen? It is astonishing. It is astonishing. And I think what's interesting is that when you look at this whole situation from the EU's point of view, um, I think many people in Brussels are very much unwilling to look at any further renegotiations. So this whole idea that this deal perhaps could be changed or improved is very much a UK conversation not a EU one. Um, When we think about the fact that um, now the letters that have gotten to the 1922 commissions are about in the region of the 23, um, we must wonder, are we ever going to get to critical mass where the vote of no confidence is actually going to be triggered? Perhaps it's just been a bit of a big stunt to see how far they can they could push it but in in inadvertently all of these things end up to kind of um re regain a certain stability so that Theresa May seems to kind of float above all of this whilst they keep creating these whirlpools underneath just to just to kind of keep their criticism going Exactly. And I think that criticism is also a hardcore Brexiteers way of trying to avoid any responsibility in the future. Now they are screaming that, no, 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 this is not what we want. This must not happen. And, well, it's possibly something like this is going to happen. And then they can be, after Brexit, they can be like, well, we said we didn't want this. We didn't want this. And at the same time, they were the ones who actually instigated the whole process, Brexit. And I think what's interesting when you're talking about the, the vote of no confidence is that I think a lot of people have speculated that it is it is perhaps quite likely that there is going to be a vote of no confidence held, but it's unlikely that Theresa May will actually be voted out and that they'll actually get that majority. And that means they won't... Uh, be able to be another vote of confidence for another year. Exactly, so she, might, she might have sort of ridden out the storm by Exactly, then. and that's a very important point as well, and I bet they are thinking about that, because as you mentioned, if Theresa May were to win this vote of no confidence, it would be way past the actual Brexit day, and she would still be in power. See, th- this is where I want to refloat my own analysis of the situation, which I'm determined to make stick, which is that Theresa May is working towards being fondly recalled by history as, as having embarked upon this incredible subtle, self-sacrificing tack of feigned uh, incompetence in an attempt to drive this thing as far into the weeds as she possibly can and therefore save the country from itself. Anybody? Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that um, it's indicative of how isolated she is in this perhaps truly self-sacrificing spirit and this willingness to become this figure that becomes at the end of this whole process. Actually, I think right now she probably looks better than she did a couple of months ago. Most people have been, you know, um, remarking how determined and and just unwavering she has been. Except she's, she's, she's volunteered to be the lightning rod for everybody's anger, though. Remainers obviously dislike her because she's leading the country towards Brexit. Brexit dislike her because she's leading the country to the wrong sort of Brexit and I don't think anyone really cares about the middle options I, I, I have to say that I actually appreciate her more after yesterday considering what kind of a day she had and how well she seemed to manage all that first in the morning ministerial resignations then she is being questioned by the House of Commons for three hours that must be really intensive then a bit later a press conference at five o'clock where journalists are asking difficult questions and one of the questions was why she 
hadn't managed to find new people to replace those ministerial roles. And she was saying that, well, as you may understand, I have had a rather busy day. Well, indeed, and she will have plenty more, uh, on which note we should move along, but only slightly, because Brexit is unsurprisingly and quite rightly, if altogether tediously, completely consuming British politics and media, and doubtless will for years and years to come, so that's worth staying alive for. But how is it seen from elsewhere? Is Britain being perceived as a plucky underdog seeking to cast aside the shackles of EU bureaucracy to stand higher and prouder among the nations of the world, or is it being seen as a senile grandparent refusing to take its tablets and insisting that the nurses are hiding its slippers? Um, Chiara, is is this being taken at all seriously in Italy? Because there was some talk a couple of years back um, of an Italian exit. I don't know if anyone actually ever coined a sort of witty portmanteau phrase for that, but have Italians who were previously interested in Exitaly, that was Ex-Italy. it. Exitaly, that was it. I knew there was something like that. Exit. Um, have Italians who were interested in leaving the EU become less interested after regarding this spectacle? I think so. Although Brexit remains a very important topic of conversation in Italy, is it perhaps because 600,000 people, at least in 2016, um, used to live in the UK? I'm one of them. Um, La Repubblica leads on the story today. Uh, even though it's not the main picture, it is the main uh, the main story and the, I guess the first uh, news spread. Uh, much of it is a bit of a straight news story, but a very interesting comment is the analysis uh, written by Guido Crainz um, that tries to understand, and perhaps it's a little bit kind of last, a little bit too little, too late. Tries to understand why the European project just doesn't seem appealing anymore. And I think one of the interesting things that he talks about in the piece is that the EU has become very much just an economic union and much more so than a culture union. I think this is very important in the Italian context right now as well, because we've got to remember the last week was a week of clashes, essentially, between Italy and Brussels due to the proposal of the new budget by the Italian government. And so there is a a varying degree of Euroscepticism in Italy at the moment because um, the population and the government often finds that Brussels imposes these austerity measures on Italy um, and has done so for the last decade. Um, So I think it's very important to remember that also for Italians right now, what's missing is a sense of the cultural mission of the EU and and not just that it is an economic kind of problem at the moment. Um, so, so I think seeing the EU rally together in, in a way that's beyond, uh, beyond just the, the deficit cuts perhaps will help the Italians understand that there is something beyond just them rejecting the budget deal. Marcus, what is the view of this from Helsinki? Because my own experience in travelling in the rest of Europe in the last couple of years since the vote has mostly been people just baffled. They don't really understand what Britain is doing. It seems to be regarded as as much as the sort of nation-state equivalent of mm. somebody arguing with them, themselves on the bus. Oh boy, you wouldn't believe how many how many analysis pieces in the Finnish media I've been reading about why the UK decided to leave the European Union, I think I think people really are baffled over there. And like when I look at how how the Finnish media has been has been reporting about all of this, I think I think there's 
was interesting. Maybe it's a Finnish angle to this story, but Finland would be very curious to know what what role Russia has been playing during the referendum when it come, came to like social media, when it came to like you know, what was the Kremlin doing something to try to influence the outcome of this election? And that is obviously because Finland mm. is a bit wary about what's happening in Russia. Another point, as I mentioned, is is trying to explain to people why this has happened. And you know, from that Nordic point of view, it, it's a welfare society where everyone feels like they're in the same boat. I think. It's interesting for the Finnish readers to actually learn how divided the UK is as a nation, how the class system plays into this, how there are people who don't feel like they've got nothing to do with the European Union, so many people with no passports, people who never leave the borders of this country. And 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 one more thing that's also been getting surprisingly much attention in, in the Finnish media has been the uprise of racism in the country, in this country after after the Brexit Brexit vote as well. And I've been reading editorials in in quite a few newspapers looking at the latest developments and it's it's very clear that the UK doesn't seem to be on the winning side over here there's there's no cherry picking when it comes to the deals and and one red line i see through all these articles is that this is going to be a moment of awakening for the UK it's it's still what this country is going through is still a hangover from from the great era of great britain when it would control such big parts of the world and i think It hasn't quite sunk in yet in this country <laughs> that it's not a superpower anymore. It's just one nation among other European countries. Uh, Paige, uh, Marcus mentions Russia there. You you are not here as a representative of the Russian nation, but you, you <laughs> do not. speak their language. Uh, so you are able to tell us how their papers have reported the last few days' shenanigans. Is it just the Russian for whatever the equivalent of ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha is? I, or, or, or have they gone into a bit more depth than that? I mean, I... I I would think I would think I'd like to read those articles. I mean, uh, the Russian front pages, as as they always do, um, they tend to be quite straight. So usually we're getting sort of uh, very much domestic stories about oil and industry. Um, but interestingly, Commerçant does have um, this page, uh, uh, this story on their front page today, um, and it's basically it's just talking about how May really battled through. I mean, there's a we've had a lot of chat about her defiance and her stoicism through all of that, and they they have highlighted that. Um, they seem to think that May has has behaved relatively well in the situation. There's been very little criticism of her. Um, there's a subheading that says, you know, Brexit requires sacrifice. Um, and I, the main takeaway, sort of as we've all been saying, is that, you know, the EU is coming out as the winner here. And there's a bit of analysis um, further on by Eliona Ananieva, who basically says um, the situation can be simplified in such a way that, you know, the, the, Europe, the, the European Union are the winners here. And this was always going to be inevitable. And right at the end, she says it was always going to be a lose-lose situation. The UK were always going to exit this in worse terms. So what were they really fighting for? I, I did have a brief scan of the the media of my own homeland, uh, which is Australia, to see how it was being covered there. But I, I get the sense that there's any any real interest in Brexit or you know vis a vis whether it may or may not affect England's cricket team. And I, and and, and I, I I don't think. It seems all that likely to. Um, Paige, you are here, however, at this table as a representative of, of, of the people of the United Kingdom. I am. Uh, and, and, and by way of teeing us up seamlessly to talk about the soft power survey in the second half of yes. the show, is it, is it your sense that what we have witnessed in the last couple of years is diminishing Britain um, in the eyes of the world? And actually, possibly a better question is, should it? Is there anything to be said at all for what we've been watching? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I think the, the whole Brexit scandal unfortunately does show a, a sort of nastier side to the UK and the sort of the, the treatment of everyone um, within government and I suppose also how the UK was lied to initially um, and how the 
this sort of precludes some kind of like isolationism um, is definitely not a good sign. But when we are going to be talking about soft power and talking about more cultural exports, I do think that we've managed to keep those relatively separate. Uh, so it's definitely not good news, as we've seen <laughs> across tough, all though. the papers. It's tough, but... though, because there will be actually quite practical consequences on those mm. things, on those mm. cultural things that you talk about as a consequence of Brexit, specifically, especially if um, if we crash out with a no deal. You know, the uh, the music, the art industry all rely very much on, on the European Union and the free movement free of movement, people. Yeah. So it's going to be tough. Well, on that happy thought, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Chiara Ramella, Paige Reynolds and Marcus Hippie. Coming up next, a relatively Brexit-free second half. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you will get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Marcus Hippie, Chiara Ramella and Paige Reynolds. Now, on a newsstand near you right now is the latest edition of Monocle magazine, which contains the ninth iteration of our annual soft power survey, an analysis of which nations wield the mightiest non-military arsenal and how and why. Now, given that there is around this table no representative of this year's winner, we can all take turns complaining how grievously hard done by our nation has been. Um, Marcus, I, I have... I have run the numbers here and looked at, at where we where we placed. Um, Finland uh, oh. ha, has come last of the four countries represented here, seventeenth. So it, it 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 sucks to be you right now. Can I point? <laughs> can I point? Uh, out? Our, our, our listeners can't see that the rest of us are all doing the L sign on on our foreheads. Can I just point out? I've got two passports nowadays. I'm also a representative of the United Kingdom. Well, good time. <laughs> the, the United Kingdom, it has to be said, still clung on for Number sixth. Six. Yep. Uh, but I, I do still want to talk about Finland, Marcus, obviously because it's funnier. Um, you, you've been you've been knocked over by uh, the Netherlands in 16th. You have, oh, finished, yeah. you have finished just ahead of Norway, which I'm sure is some consolation. Um, but, but what is Finland getting credit for here? Why are you the world's 17th best soft power nation? Well, there's a few factors. Some of them are more long-standing, so... I don't think there is anyone at Midori House, at least, who wouldn't know about the greatness of the Finnish education system. That is something that is always mentioned when you are reading international articles on... on, And and of which you are a pristine example, Marcus. Exactly. Another thing I've been doing a bit is sauna diplomacy. I don't know if that's diplomacy in my case, but I've been spending a fair bit of time in sauna. But anyway, sauna... Sauna diplomacy, is that that a euphemism? Sauna is a great cultural asset. And actually, sauna diplomacy is a Finnish tradition, maybe less so nowadays than before, but, you know... Believe me, in 1990s, 80s, 70s, 60s, Finnish ministers, Finnish president would invite their Russian counterparts, for example, over and they would be sitting in a sauna drinking beer, maybe vodka as well, sometimes talking about the relations between these two countries. And Finland has been doing that with some some other, other politicians, decision makers as well. However, that relations between Finland and Russia have not been historically <laughs> terrific, I mean, Marcus. I mean, they, they, they have been decent. I mean, it's, it's debatable. <laughs> it's a bit debatable what the status 
this has been, but like on the surface, <laughs> it's always been a friendly relationship, at least after after the Second World War. But I think, <laughs> I think after the <laughs> after the Second World I, War, that that, uh, that minor I, blip. But I think I, I have to say the sort of diplomacy is something that you don't understand it unless you've done it. Because if you are naked in this hot room, you can't really <laughs> pretend. You have to be honest, and you kind of you kind of you are just more you are more. Open, I guess, in that situation. Kiara, I know you've done your Finnish sauna, so tell me, tell more about that. Absolutely. You know, I was converted to Finland after the sauna experience. I've got to say, I went. This conversation has taken a turn I was not expecting, (laughs) but do do carry on. I just think sauna bring brought my Mediterranean soul a little bit closer to the Nordics, and we connected. It was a beautiful thing. That's what I'm trying to explain over here. But moving on to other factors. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing about saunas in Finland's entry here at number 17. <laughs> there is, there is. It was the halfway, missing metric through. that would have shot um, it up. Also, Finland's got the best claim for Santa Claus. Oh, yeah, it's and right there. one more thing that is actually benefiting Finland this year is obviously Helsinki was hosting one of the most important, well, I don't know about the results, but one of the most publicized um, catch-ups between Donald Trump and Putin. That was the that was the August summit in and, Helsinki. And, and a great shame it is that, that, that a lot wasn't of in a sauna. Um, Mark, Marcus, before we move on, I do want you to talk about a little, a little about, about a little, what is mentioned at the bottom of Finland's entry at number 17. Uh, this is a Finnish concept which I can't Ooh. pronounce. Oh, it's Galsarikannit. Yeah. So, I don't know, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not a massive fan of of this new push for Galsarikannit. So, okay, Denmark had its hygge first, which is that when it's cold outside, you have loads of candles and then you cuddle at home. Sweden, they, they did manage to make a global lifestyle craze exactly. out of wearing then big Sweden, socks. Then Sweden followed and they had Lagom, which is a philosophy of not having anything too much nor too little is kind of like a certain level of modesty and kind of like, you know, taking it easy at home and comfy as well. And then Finland was like, crap, we need to have something as well. So we <laughs> came up with Galsarikannit, which is a Finnish tradition, which means that you're wearing your underwear at home and you're drinking all by yourself. It's cosy as well when it's cold outside. And as our listeners <laughs> and as our listeners cannot see, Marcus is right now. Um, uh, in, in, in ascend- again, uh, in, in, in ascending order, uh, Chiara, number 12, uh, we have Italy. How, how how and why has Italy fallen short of the top ten? Because I, I, I am, as I have, may have mentioned in this space before, a big fan of Italy, and I think it, it has a terrific uh, overseas re- overseas reputation, idea of itself. I think people think positive things about it by and large. Why is it languishing? And I have to say, as an Australian, this is funny. A place behind New Zealand. Oh, God, the absolute atrocity <laughs> of it all. Now, we've lost a few spots. And I think that in this case, it's it's due to our current political situation. People tend to think that populist governments don't do very well for your reputation. Um uh, in the entry, um, we we still do well for our international festivals and having been to Salone del Mobile countless times now, I can really say that it is culturally, in the broader sense of the word culture, a very important international thing. Uh, we've got Venice Biennale, architecture and art. Um, and obviously, again, it's it's strange how a place like Venice, which is very far away from your idea of a metropolis, can still become a place where 
the very cutting edge can happen. And I think that's a very interesting um, combination of things. Um, personally, I think one of the things that Italy's done really well this past year has been to push for its cinema and TV abroad. Um, Luca Guadagnino, I think, is one of our main assets uh, in, in cinema at the moment. Suspiria has just come out. And I think Call Me By Your Name, which is obviously not just last year's um, release but it has managed to put this the, a new version of Italy I think also on the map as well this kind of northern Italian lakeside so that we go away from the usual Costiera Malfitana or you know your normal Mediterranean coast but you discover a new kind of of Italian holiday not the Roman holiday anymore. Well that brings us up to my country Australia in position eight which is an outrage that is seven places short obviously is where of where we should be and I for one will be cancelling my subscription as soon as this show is over Um, and Paige the UK is still hanging in there at number six but do you think it will stay? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I think the conversation we had in the first half of the show suggests otherwise. Um, but I think I'm, I'm pretty happy with six for the moment. Um, and, I, and I do think that... The... It, it says here that the UK is antagonistic, stubborn and undiplomatic. That's a little bit harsh. <laughs> I mean, and I, and, I, and I don't think it affects some of the uh, amazing cultural exports uh, or the cultural sort of um, benefits that the UK has. I mean, first looking at um, the media landscape in the UK, looking at the BBC World Service that we've mentioned here, broadcasts in more than 40 languages. Um, it's a sort of, you know, uh, we're, we're smartly investing in that as a soft power asset. The Foreign Office partially funds the World Service and we're always adding new languages. It's universally trusted. Um, and I think if we're going to take another other cultural thing that the UK does really well, I'd say musically, we've always really come out on top. Um, you've got uh, Elton John, who's one of our, our biggest stars. He's sold over 78 million units worldwide. His tour tickets went on sale today. Mm. And the John Lewis advert was released yesterday where he features, and it's fantastic. So go home and watch that. Queen, we've got the Freddie Mercury film out at the moment oh, that everyone's on. raving about. Spice Girls tickets went on sale last week. Dido's <sighs> about to make a comeback. No, she's not. She is. She's about to go back on tour. It's it's looking I, I think up for I the would, UK music scene. I think scene. I would literally rather listen to a barrel being scraped, bit, but that's that's which is where you were getting to write about the Spice Girls. Mm. I'm just thinking about this whole thing about the UK, by the way, now because I'm representing the UK as well. I try, <laughs> uh, but it's kind of like I think the UK will need to. I think I think this country will need to do something in the future to try to kind of reboot everything because I think like looking at the things from the Finnish point of view, I'm just thinking about this whole thing as as quite sad. It's like I think of this country as turning a bit grey, and I'm thinking about how everyone seems to be longing back to 1950s and 60s and I don't want to return to the era of television meals or whatever they were called bad food and just (laughs) generic depression Thank you, Marcus, for that, that upbeat segue into our final item. Uh, there is much more on our soft power survey in a special edition of the Foreign Desk tomorrow at midday UK time, also featuring much more of Chiara. But finally tonight, and staying in France, which I think we can reveal did win this year's soft power survey, uh, the mayor of its capital might be doing her bit to entrench the country at top spot in next year's survey. Anne Hidalgo, for it is she, wants to pedestrianise the centre of Paris. The plan would abolish motor traffic in the first four arrondissements and make one of the world's great walking cities even more so, not least by reducing the likelihood of being mown down on the footpath by some yahoo on a moped. I do speak from repeated personal experience. Um, does, Does anybody object violently to this proposal? Well, I think if you look at the London example and and the discussions and the constant to and fro that the Oxford Street project has had, um, I think what 
at first appears a great idea, and I'm all for pedestrianisation and I'm all for reducing the amount of pollution in the air, often comes back to bite you because I've been thinking about the Oxford Street proposal myself here in London. And as much as it sounds like a fantastic idea at first, you do think about how many times you cross that street diagonally as well. And you start... In, in fantasy, it, it, usually crossing Oxford Street to get away from it because it is an <laughs> utter dump, whereas the, the, the parts of Paris we're talking about here are, are glorious. Absolutely. But it, it, for, the, from the, for the mobility of the city, it still requires a big rethink. And I'm not saying that it's impossible or that it's negative it just means it's a big shift in terms of the way that everything moves in the city also public transport i I think i think lessons can be learned from other cities in this case i happen to live in the area in london that is currently going through some kind of a transformation it's it's called the mini holland scheme and the idea in that we've we've already got one of those in leightonstone exactly well i live in walthamstone next door and we're having that in my area now and there's been consultations and it's so controversial people really are into their cars aren't they there was one person who actually declared a hunger strike (laughs) until this this scheme goes away but then he cancelled last minute but anyway I do understand I've been following this so carefully I do understand people's concerns some people are worried about what if something happens to their partners what if something happens at home how easily will emergency vehicles find there I've been in in one of the areas that has had the traffic the way it's organised changed and I had to wait for my taxi for 15 minutes because the car couldn't find there so there are some practical things I think it needs to be thought through very carefully how you do and organise when you go and things change things this dramatically. You, you had to wait for a taxi for 15 minutes. Have you, have you considered a hunger strike, Marcus? <laughs> <laughs> I did, almost did that moment. I, I, I have to say, I really agree with Marcus in terms of, I think this, this is going to require, and as um, uh, Chiara was saying as well, it's going to require a, a massive sort of attitude change and a rethink to how we, like, how we, how we experience a city. But I was just doing some reading on air pollution um, just before sort of looking at the, the um, different reasons why we'd uh, have these sort of schemes. And air pollution contributes to more than 9,000 premature deaths in London every year by a study by King's College London and every single area of London exceeds the World Health Organization's guidelines um, uh, for a measure of small particles in the air Um, and 8 out of 10 people in the world are breathing in air above uh, World Health Organization pollution limits so you know I think it's it's all nice to have convenience um, but I do think these are like really really serious issues and I don't think we delve into what it's doing to our, our health perhaps enough. See that's why my solution is just to pedestrianise absolutely everything. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of inconvenience. I think it's character building. And just use horses, maybe. Uh, horses. Um, horses are fine. Camels, moose. I, 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 I think it would... It would cheer London up enormously. I'm trying to think about Helsinki. I don't think people over there would be much for pedestrian streets. We don't need too many because it's minus 20 in the winter anyway. Don't want to spend too much time outside. <laughs> that does bring us to the end of today's show. Chiara Ramella, Marcus Hippi and Paige Reynolds, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Barbara Maimoni. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. Marcus is back with the menu. The Daily is on at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening.